I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode. I'm really excited about our topic today. We are talking about over-exercise in an eating disorder, and this is really important. I know from my own experience, people would say to me, doctors, therapists, my family, saying, think about what you're doing to your body long-term. And I used to think, eh, I really don't care about long-term. I don't even know if there's going to be a long-term in my life. I'm only thinking about how exercise feels for me now. I know that medical complications do not scare people with eating disorders, or they do in the moment when you think there's a problem and then it passes and you're like, whew, got through that one. I was very, very lucky I recovered from my eating disorder and I have no long-term health consequences. I'm going to say this again because it's important. I was very, very lucky to recover from an eating disorder with no lifelong consequences. I know people used to say to me, you know, what about this? What about that? And for those of you who have seen my website, I my favorite quote, My favorite quote was, I was never afraid of dying from an eating disorder. I was afraid to live without it. I get it. Today's episode, Robin Goldberg, she's going to be talking about some lifelong injuries that she's had multiple surgeries as a result of not taking care of her body, as a result of abusing exercise. It is really important. Again, I know a lot of you are listening to this being like, eh, or it'll, it happens to others, not to me. I have many dear, dear friends who are fully recovered, who to this day have fragile bones, still get stress fractures. It happens. So please pay attention to this. I want you to all really try to think not just about the moment and what you're getting in the moment from exercise. I want you to try to think about long-term consequences. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoy this episode. Take care. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Recovery Bites. Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. Our guest this week is Robin Goldberg, who is a dietitian out in Beverly Hills, California. Robin, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much, Karen. I'm excited to be here. I am thrilled. I'm thrilled to have you because, first of all, you're just such a, a, a wonderful you know, inspiration. We're going to talk for you about exercise, nutrition, things like that. Also, I'm so proud of you. You just published a book. It's very exciting. So I'm going to make sure we weave that into the podcast because anything that clients can get their hands on for literature is fantastic. So Robin, tell us a little bit about your practice, what you do, let the listeners know exactly who you are. Thanks. So I'm a certified eating disorder registered dietitian supervisor through our accredited academy, IADEPT, which is the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals. And I uh, see kids as young as six. I see kids, tweens, teens, adults with medical issues, body image issues, and eating disorders. And I started my career at a major medical center and 
Los Angeles, where I was the cardiac dietitian for five years, then the Department of Gastroenterology. And I ran an outpatient eating disorder program for a little over eight years. And I've been in private practice in Beverly Hills for the last 23 years. And I'm proud to say, yes, I am the author of a new book, which was just launched this week called The Eating Disorder Trap, A Guide for Clinicians and Loved Ones. Love it. Yes. Thank God. I think that is fantastic. So first of all, this is just on a personal note. I love that you say that you used to work as a with a gastroenterologist because I don't know if listeners know this, but I was actually diagnosed with my eating disorder by my gastroenterologist 30 years ago. For me, there was so much attached to the fact that I didn't want to let my eating disorder go. One of my symptoms is that I abuse laxatives. So I was very, very, very sick all the time. And my parents knew, we all knew what was going on. And the way to sort of get me in was, you know what, maybe there's something wrong with your digestive system, Karen, let's bring you to a gastroenterologist. Robin, we all knew. We all knew what was happening. We all knew that I was going to be diagnosed with an eating disorder. And I think I finally was just tired enough. And I said, okay. So there's something about like when you just said that you used to work with gastroenterologists, I, it, it dawned on me like, my God, that's how I was diagnosed with anorexia nervosa. So I don't know what made me just think of that, but I just wanted to share that with you. Go for well, it. Yeah. I, I was going to say kudos to the physician that was savvy enough to recognize symptoms because I have many clients that see a gastroenterologist and have not disclosed that they currently struggle with an eating disorder or they historically have had a history of and they'll diagnose them with some other irritable bowel disease or stress or what have you. So that's awesome that this physician was ahead of his time. Right. I also think part of it is because it was 30 years ago, I don't even know if I had a, a name for what I was going through. I don't even think I knew that I wasn't supposed to say, yeah, I don't eat at all. I exercise all the time. I'm restricting laxatives. I don't even think I knew that that was actually a, a there was an actual diagnosis, even though we all knew there was something wrong. Um, but yeah, right. Kudos to that gastroenterologist. Unbelievable. So I want to actually just sort of dive in talking about being recovered, things like that. So Robin, everybody has a definition, a definition of what being recovered is. How do you define being recovered? I would define being recovered as being free with food choices that are made, that food does not result in having feelings of guilt or shame or disappointment or have it result in requiring to move more or alter what is being consumed in another meal, that food can be pleasurable, it can be social, it can really be a wonderful part of one's life versus having it be a constant chatter in, in yeah. one's mind. Yeah. Do you remember times when food wasn't like that for you in your life? Because I do. And I do not take for granted that food has such, I'm going to use the word delicious place in my life now because it is, um, or nourishing. But do you remember when there were times when food was not something that in your life that was a positive? I, ironically, you know, as I just listened to your question, I mean, I grew up in a household where food was treated as fuel. You know, I grew up on Chef Boyardee and Hepperidge Farm and you know, had McDonald's. Yeah, I'm a child of the 70s. And so it was actually never, I would say, a problem. It was really the activity part that sort of stood out when I was competing and tennis, you know, I had a full ride tennis scholarship and with all these, you know, I've had five foot surgeries and all these physical issues where I felt like the movement piece became an issue from the, unfortunately, the external messages from the different tennis coaches I was with. But in retrospect, I think now the longer I've been in the field, I see conversations and thoughts that my mother actually 
has. I was like, I don't know how I didn't end up having some sort of full-blown eating disorder that it all occurred like later from the the movement piece so yeah so my upbringing was like yeah we had you know Chinese food or pizza Sunday nights and we enjoyed but it was never a concern of calories or any of the lingo and terminology we hear our clients talk about these days right how were you able actually let me change the way I asked that was there a time when you noticed that your exercise was so compulsive that it was actually causing the need for multiple surgeries. You were still working out while you were injured. I also want to point out, it is really complicated to define the difference between an athlete, which you are, still are, and somebody who's abusing exercise, right? That's That's a tough call sometimes. So how did it come for you? How did it come about where you recognized that this was an issue? Honestly, I think I'm a rare case, Karen, because my first foot surgery was when I was around 13 or 14, genetically, you know, having bunionectomy and hammer toes and things that teens don't typically develop. And it never, you know, occurred to me then, but then in college, you know, I always say, you know, the movie, My Left Foot, that's my story, my left foot, having all these problems. So it, it didn't stand out to me. We're like, oh, I have to find other ways. I mean, I, I will say, and in, in fairness, I remember when I had the pin, like the last, you know, pin in my foot and I was on crutches. This is before I got married. So I've been married 17 years. And I remember having a trainer work with me upper body wise just to help from that ability. But it was never that place. I think for me, the turning point really was when I realized that I had, you know, these messed up feet. And when my father was alive, he would always talk about Robin, like consider, you know, movement that's not hard on the body because I always had this soreness after the tennis or the training and people would say, oh yes, you look like a runner, but my body was not made for it. I always had physical ailments as a result it was honestly like after college that you know I was a kid I would ride my bike to tennis I was always with the bike but I would then take up swimming and had swim lessons and then it was like oh I can do these things like what about a triathlon and I think that was honestly I always say that sport is the gateway to an eating disorder the culture of you know, being around people that feel guilt of like, oh, I only did a mile swim and a three mile run. I got to get on. the And I was like, that's kind of weird because for me, it was like something fun because I was always competitive. And, and honestly, when my feet and my hips started to really be problematic, a light bulb went off in my head saying, I don't want to be a senior citizen having a hip replacement. I don't, I, I want to be an able body and be able to move. I don't want to be handicapped. And it was literally through, you know, now being in my mid forties in, I would say like my late twenties, early thirties, when I thought this is important to try to adjust because otherwise this will be a bigger issue after seeing clients that have had all these new body parts. And I did not want to be that person. So it was kind of my realization. And it's not fun to sit elevated with ice packs and this kind of stuff. How did you make that switch? The million dollar question, right? Because right now, I'm hearing in my mind, all of my clients that struggle with exercise addiction. How did she do it? How did she get through it? How did she navigate through life? Do you get triggered when you see other people exercising? You know, all of these questions that I can just imagine are happening. So can you say, can you speak to that? I'm going to tell you, I think I had almost a death experience. I was in a triathlon and I had always done, so I did five and a half and they were in lakes and bays, warm water with the wetsuit. And my father was alive at the time and when I was doing them and he was a boater and a fisherman. And I had this 
ridiculous idea looking back now to enter this triathlon called Strawberry Fields in Oxnard, Ventura County. And I had worked with a coach because growing up in Southern California, I never swam in the ocean. I was always playing tennis. So learning how to enter, how to exit and all this stuff. So to make a long story short, it was one of the coldest summers here and the water was probably in like the high 40s 50s rough waves and my husband and my mother and her partner were standing at the shore waiting because they knew like oh yes robin you know swims a mile and she'll be out x amount of time and they see all the lifeguards bringing people in and basically three quarters of the way through i put my arm up and had the lifeguards get me and I basically developed hypothermia because it was so rough, the ocean. And it was like, I remember shivering that I couldn't even peel the wetsuit off. And my husband went to get my bike in transition. And I wanted to do this as a tribute to my father, the ocean. And, you know, when I remember I saw my doctor that week and she was like, thank God that your nutrition was well intact. And I realized like, that's it, I'm done. Like I could have died. In there, they're and and I had it took probably like eight months. I remember circulation wise, I had damaged one of my toes and my other foot, and I was like, and it was scary, like almost dying, having these lifeguards throw you on the wave runner, and yes, yeah, so that was my I like I haven't run in eleven years. I ha- I was like that was it. I mean, <laughs> I had a come to Jesus moment basically. Yeah. I want to say something, but I don't want to get off this, but I, I, what just came to my mind and um, unfortunately listeners cannot see you as I can right now, but you, you did the, the movement of I'm not waving, I'm not, I'm drowning. Like help me. You like lifted up your hand. You have to put your hand up. So they'll, yeah. And so what it reminded me of, I don't know if you've ever read Anita Johnston in her book, Eating in the Light of the Moon. And of course, every, I mean, I, I had to ask it in the sense, maybe you haven't. <laughs> number two it, testimonial in the book. Is Anita Johnston. Yes, and so number Anita, one. Anita has a metaphor with people in the water with eating disorders and they're, they're, they have their hand up and they're waving and people are like waving back. And she's like, I'm not waving, I'm drowning. And I just, I just felt that image all over my body when, yeah, when you did that. So this is the other thing that I want to ask you about, which is I gratefully from my training, um, you know, and again, I often talk about Carolyn because I trained under Carolyn Costin. Carolyn had a wonderful way of explaining to me and to other clients and clinicians about the role that exercise can still play in somebody's life. And I know a lot of clients are petrified to go into treatment because they're afraid someone's going to say to them, you can never exercise again, which is not at all a healthy message to give somebody, right? Because we want them to still be able to exercise in a healthy way, in a joyful way, in a way that makes their, you know, their heartbeat well, you know, all these things. How did you navigate, I guess, going from unhealthy exercise to healthy exercise? Honestly, I, the, the psychologist I've seen on for years, I saw her for EMDR for trauma because prior to, I didn't mention the, um, the ocean situation. I was in a cycling accident many years ago. And for a short time, I would clip in the pedals and the plane screws. So I would see her name's Barbara. I would see Barbara because I was afraid to get back on the bike. And then the ocean. So with having these different traumas, I was like, okay, you know what? Clearly my way's not working and there's got to be a better and different way. So I really had hit my bottom and surrendered that, you know, I, this was fun to me, but I wanted movement that could be fun and not putting myself at risk or in danger. And really fear is what the, what got the best of me to just put all my cards on the table and say, okay, you know what? I want to do what will 
keep me here and keep me not injured and safe. And, and that, that was my, you know, calling point. Right. How would you explain to a client? And, and this might be a really broad question that's difficult to answer, but how would you explain to a client, you're eventually going to be able to go back to exercise? Like I've said to clients, you know what? You actually do have to stop for a while. You're not feeding yourself adequately or you're purging every time you you eat. So I'm not saying never, I'm just saying now. And when I use the word just, I don't mean to invalidate because it's really hard, but I'm just saying now. How do you explain to clients how they can get back into exercise in a healthy way and what signs to look for if it starts becoming compulsive again? Well, the one thing I want to say with me, I never had any menstruation irregularities or lost it. So for many of our clients, that is a thing, like they haven't menstruated in multiple months. So, you know, we talk about what could be forms of movement that are pleasurable, that aren't high intensity interval training, maybe a restorative yoga. I'm, I'm going through this now with one of my, you know, teens who's doing virtual school and, you know, hasn't menstruated in eight months. And finally her mom's like, Oh, something's wrong. And I could see the family has not resolved their own stuff with food. And so I have really had to negotiate with this, you know, client to be able to say, you know what, is there something else that we're able to do that's not getting your heart rate up that, I know you like that endorphin high because I would say this is not forever, but it's learning how to integrate movement into your life that can be fun and yes, a way to cope with stress and anxiety because it certainly heightens now, but let's explore other hobbies that you have or you have had in the past that maybe have been forgotten about, especially because we hear this so often from clients like my body's going to change now being at home with, you know, COVID-19. Oh yeah. And I'm people a- say, yeah. And I forgive me for interrupting. I, I can't even tell you not only that. And again, forgive me, how many clients are saying to me now, all these jokes are going around. Like I gained the COVID 15 as opposed to like the freshman 15, you know, because Facebook and Instagram and everything, and it's just, they are being bombarded by these comments. So I apologize. Keep going. Sorry, Robin. Yeah. And, and I think too, it's it's really, I think this is a time for self-reflection to review what your values are in life and your beliefs. And hopefully with what this is doing to us as the human race with not able to give a hug and interact the way we like or shake someone's hand or a high five and all these things, how us is people can try to slow down and even just reflect on what's important to them. Because I know the eating disorder voice for many is really loud and getting angry and doesn't want them to succeed and fail and doesn't want them to trust any other, you know, words and voices and support around them. So I think it's a constant negotiation pertaining to the movement and other forms that can be incorporated because, you know, everyone's been robbed of normalcy in their life. Now, this is the new normal and and really trying to settle in with that. And of course, we're going to grieve what we've had and be sad by it and, you know, be mad and all these types of things. But I think having the support of a team is so, so important and knowing this is not forever. And again, when you're entrenched in eating disorder, it's hard to see the other side, of course, with the healthy self and healthy voice. Yes, absolutely. What is it like for you? I know that this is a, a provocative question to ask somebody who's in the industry, who's in the field. Do you ever get triggered? So you said you haven't been running for 11 years. When you're working with athletes and high performance runners, things like that. What comes up for you? Does it ever trigger you? No, I always ask, do you have any injuries? Do you have you? I mean, it's I, I have a friend I grew up with who's, you know, 
in like four foot 10. She's 50. She runs a lot of it. This is, and I think she's made for running. Like, no, nothing bothers me. Nothing. No, you know, it's sometimes it, it, it was more in the past. I would be jealous or sad, like, especially now when you have limited types of activities and things that can be done. And when I'll be walking the dogs with my husband, I'll see some jogging by. I think that would be nice. It's fun. And I'm a little sad, but I'm like, you know what? The way I physically felt, this is better. I I kind of do a pro and con list. So no, it doesn't, doesn't trigger me. It's just a, a place of sadness. And I remember that time in my life, but I, I, I think of other things that I miss and that I would love to to do now. It's just like, it's not an option. So, And that's being recovered. That doesn't mean that you don't see something and say, God, I'd really like to do that again. You're, but because you're recovered, you say, and I never will, or, and it's not an option, or, and there's alternatives. That's the difference about being recovered. That healthy voice that you have to use back to say back. And the other part I want to say is I really value my quality of life. I mean, it's taken me a long time to say, you know what? And and I think, you know, getting older doesn't mean that you're getting wiser, but thinking, I don't want to be in pain. I want to be able to enjoy, like, you know, I mentioned before you and my husband, we go on these cycling trips all over the world. And the last like handful of years, because, you know, I work so much and I don't have time to train and be on the bike as much you know to me it's like going to india is about going to india the bikes the added bonus and if i'm sore and i can't experience a country and the people and the cuisine what's the point so more times than none i ride when i ride and i go in the van and i get to know the guides and the people that's fine because i'm who knows i'm going to travel back to these places i want to enjoy myself yep Yep. So again, this is a more, this, this is a more, what does a more mean? This is more evidence that it's not that you can never exercise again, or if somebody who used exercise in the past, if they're exercising now, you have to be like, oh, they might be sliding. It's putting everything in perspective. I remember, I don't know if I saw it in writing or if when you and I were talking on the phone, that exact example where you said you would get in the van, let everybody else ride okay, I'm tired. My body hurts. I'm not here just for the bike ride. For for the longest time, Karen, it was my ego. I couldn't put my ego aside and it was the pride. And now I'm like, you know what? I can have the best of both worlds and I don't have to be a maniac and injure myself. And especially when we go on these bike trips and you've seen people that have had serious accidents like when we rode through china and a guy was you know heliovac to hong kong because you know, so it's like i want to be conservative and cautious i would say it's like if you invited me to las vegas i'd say great let's see a show you'd say well let's gamble no i i like guarantees i'm not a risk taker i've always been a good girl i follow the rules i do what i'm told because I don't want to have a bigger issue. And I think it's been more and more evident to me as I've aged, like to do the right thing, because then I'm going to enjoy myself down the road and continuing Not that I'm torturing myself, but I can enjoy a country, the people, the food, the everything. And it's a lot more gratifying. Right. Do you share these wisdoms with your clients? Because the reality is, is, when I use the word wisdoms, they're not that profound. No offense, Robin, but but our clients need to hear this and they need to hear these things from recovered people. Like this is, I am not willing to gamble with my life. This is not why I'm here on the earth. I am here to experience. And so do you share these nuggets with your clients? And what do you think is the benefit or how do you think clients benefit from working with a recovered professional? I share with clients when self-disclosure is going to help them. So if it's in a particular topic, sure. But I don't just out of the blue say like, 
hey, you know, when I was on the bike, I mean, so it has to correlate to what we're discussing. Um, but I, I am human. You know, my clients know about my life. They know we go on bike trips. They know I have dogs. Like they know about me. I have pictures in my office. It's, it's, you know, I hug my clients. I high five. Like I'm, I'm very warm and nurturing, but also like I'm firm with boundaries. So I think it depends on what the conversation is. And, and definitely, especially when they're struggling during this time. And I know because there isn't a day that goes by or a session that an individual is discussing what they're struggling with during this time. And I'll say, I can relate. This is what I'm going through and this is how I'm working through it. And yeah, I think having the Zoom sessions I find is a lot more intense and requires more energy because I'm trying to remain present and engaged at the computer screen the entire time disclosing things. And they'll see it's like my dogs will come in or my husband's knocking on the door to take them on a walk or whatever. It's like, this is life. They are in my life really. Yeah. And there's, you know, so like the last few days I'm like, okay, I'm going to kind of dress up. I was wearing a suit to work, but I've been in like sweatpants and this and that. And I had one client say like, I love you this way. Like when we go back to the office, like, why don't you come in sweats and bring the dogs? And you know, it's like, I'm always in like the suit. The It's like, so now I've kind of gotten in place. I'm like, fuck it. <laughs> I've been doing this long enough. They know, you know, and, and yeah, it's, um, I think it just depends, but it's taken me a long time to evolve to that place. Yeah. I think it's actually incredibly healthy. If that's the right word, that's not the word I'm looking for. Helpful maybe for clients to see this. I know that when I was in my eating disorder, if I were in my eating disorder right now and had to do, say, a session with my therapist, I would make sure I was showered, my makeup was perfect, my hair was done, my outfit matched. Literally, I would go through the entire thing just for that one meeting because I could never let anyone see the real me because I had so much I had shame about who I was and what I looked like and all these things. And so... I say, you know, clients, you know, one of the things I say to clients is, yeah, I put on makeup when I leave the house and go to work, but I don't alter myself. I actually like who I am now. And so now clients see me, I wear my hair up in a ponytail. I usually wear a sweatshirt. I mean, I'm showered, I'm ready to go, but I'm not on these sessions for, for them to either judge my appearance. And if it is, that's theirs, not mine. And I'm there to help them. It's not about my appearance. It's about our eyes connecting, our hearts connecting. And I think it's really healthy to show clients this side to us that is not still in this perfectionistic mode. And and again, I don't like wear my pajamas. Well, maybe sometimes I do on the bottom, but that's what we all do. But I, so I still have respect for the for the work and for the day, but part of the respect is I'm not going anywhere. We all know that I'm in my home. You're seeing me on my couch, and I'm I'm not gonna like as you said, put on a suit. It's healthy for them to see that. I w- I want to say here, and I think um, you know when this happened. So today is 13 weeks. I broke my right foot, my other foot in an accident walking my dogs. Oh, Robin. So I'm sorry. So, <laughs> now I have, yeah. So when this happened, my family basically had an intervention to make my office handicap friendly because I was on crutches for eight weeks and it had been 17 years since I had been. So my husband would lift me in the shower. He would dress me. So I remember the first day I, cause I, it happened on a Saturday and I was back at work at Tuesday on Tuesday and I had someone dropping me off and picking me up cause I couldn't drive. And I remember he took out a pair of my sweatpants and, and a, you know, a, like a polo shirt. And I said, I can't believe I'm wearing this to work. He's, and he was like, this is what you're wearing to work. And so, you know, days after days and really being vulnerable, clients would want to open the doors because there's three doors you have to open to get in my office. And I got these heavy duty door stoppers. 
clients would say, I said something to one of my clients and my clients, Robin, he said, we come to you for how you help us, not for what you're wearing. And being vulnerable, asking someone, could you carry my bottle? Because I'm on crutches. Like, you know, and they'd see me, I'd go, I'd go on my crutches out with them to go to the bathroom. Oh, can I open the door? For and so, yes, because I've always like wanted to do everything myself and be responsible. So I feel like that was sort of the foundation, the legwork that got me placed now with being home. I was like, I was never in like workout leggings, but I was super casual and, and this whole thing and a side that no one ever saw me and it was just so humbling that my clients you know were so caring and helpful that I kind of feel like now I was able to persevere yeah. forward with that and I also try to sort of say to my clients like why are you connecting with me is it because of how I look or is it because of the dialogue that we have? Is it because of the history that we have together? Is it because we have a common bond? That's not unique to just our relationship. You can be yourself out in the world. It doesn't, this is not unique to a therapy a therapist client relationship. It's definitely different, absolutely. But I am out in the world to be myself. And if somebody doesn't like that, I feel badly for them. I have gone from being 100% the most insecure human being on earth prior to eating disorder. I swear to you, Robin, I'm like, I'm a little narcissistic now. I'm like, eh, you're lost, not mine. I, I'm not gonna, that's not why I was, again, I keep using this expression. I wasn't put on this earth to make sure people like me by the way I look. I I love the way I dress. I don't dress like anybody else. I have a different flair. I do my thing. And that's what I try to express to my clients. It's not about the outside. It's about the inside, who you are, your values, your, your kindness, your humor. It has nothing to do. And I feel like this is a lesson that my clients are really, really seeing me embody during the COVID-19 doing doing sessions from home well it's we're, we're genuine and authentic and it's it's um like you've mentioned they see how you've been able to help them and i think that's what this is about not what blouse you have on today it's it's but also i will say when there's new people like i've had quite a few new people over this time virtually it's it is more challenging because they're in my little home office. They're not in my, you know, big, beautiful office in Beverly Hills overlooking the Hollywood sign. You know, it's, you know, it's like, it's sort of like, it's the part of where I am and who I see. But here, you know, it's like, because we're all going through the same thing yes. together. And that's like yes. the commonality. It is. It is. It is. It is so different. Um, and we're all trying to normalize it right? Obviously. So I want to sort of shift gears a little bit because I want you to be able to tell the listeners about your book. You just launched this book. It's so exciting. Let's talk a little bit about that. Tell me how it came about. I know it took you about two years to work on. Or Four years to work on. <laughs> Four long years. Thank you. Well, I had decided Karen, if I was ever going to write a book, I wanted to write something that was not in our field since I support all of our peers and there's so many fantastic books, but I was really just sort of exploring what ideas could be that stand out that has not been done before. So there's so much history behind the book, the title, the cover, I mean, everything, but basically in a nutshell, I wanted a easy to understand book that anyone could pick up and not feel like it's over their head, that they don't have to be in the field. They could be your gardener. They could be someone in the grocery store. They could be your tennis coach and, and, and a family too. And, and the thing I think that makes this book unique on many levels is that it's so it's written by a dietitian breaking down like four specific components and 
in the book. So what I mean by that is, so the first section is, um, it's called Get to Know Ed, the Incidents of Eating Disorders. So it touches upon the problem, recent statistics, um, even that professionals need help too, because professionals are not God and there's clinicians that have clients with eating disorders that maybe they didn't realize they had eating disorders before. So it addresses that population as well. And then really being able to explore like a lot of, you know, people that are not clinicians spend way more time with those in the world, a religious figure, a, you know, school nurse, a, a tutor that are able to understand the role they play in helping to identify and help. So this is really giving some background information. And if you've identified a person, you know, what are the next steps, you know, for help? And then, and then I have in this, you know, part one section, really being able to talk about, you know, in a name, like I have a section called what's in a name, because I think it really comes down to, I hate to say insurance. So, you know, that we're required to put a specific diagnosis and a name. And oftentimes our clients either have multiple eating disorders or one will morph into another, or they've had one specific diagnosis and then it goes back to the prior. And it's really understanding like the meaning behind the, the name and that whole piece from an insurance standpoint. So then part two is the evaluation and assessment and tools that registered dietitians use that are much more meaningful than BMI. Yes. The medical field has spoken about that for a long time and understanding that it is outdated. And I really kind of get into the basics of that. And in that section, we talk about the various degrees of normal can a person be normal and look normal? Can um, you know lab tests show if the person's normal? And so I really get into all the degrees of normalcy, and then you know I kind of go full into the nutrition interview, all the questions that a certified eating sort of registered dietitian would want to ask over the time of screening and working with clients. Because even yesterday I was speaking with a mother, and she's like yeah, my daughter, she like looks healthy and she eats well. And I said, well, a person doesn't have to look a certain way to have an eating disorder, let alone disordered eating and thinking. And she's like, yes, that was why the therapist recommended you. I was surprised because she seems to be doing everything quote unquote right. Yes. Yes. False. So I really break down. It's like a fundamental from a registered dietitian place. Then I get into um, the next chapter, which, so every chapter you'll see has a catchy title because then I dig deep. So like, I love this chapter seven, Scorched Earth, um, Eating Disorder's Impact on the Body. And I have, I will just say as a side note, 34 illustrations in the book that are non-stigmatizing, non-gender conforming. So like in the Scorched Earth, chapter i'll just show you this since you can see here for me so this actually shows oh the, my gosh so, so the readers cannot see this <laughs> i'm showing this, you yes this is a fabulous picture of how do i even describe this so a this, woman- is, this is a this is actually a female on coals with Hot flames coals. and her, her brittle hair You'll see, so this is actually because I have people in smaller bodies, larger bodies, because then when I you know, get into how there is not one body part spared of, you know, when you have an eating disorder, like this next section, healing the broken heart. So the stomach has a sledgehammer on the heart and you see the heart has a crutch, he has a Band-Aid, he's, you know, injured. And so every, yeah, so every chapter has these, types of illustrations and as I you know break it down because then I I really um move into and and I will say so the I have a number of expert contributors in the book so on the medical four well-known eating disorder physicians um 
Pam Carlton, Kevin Wandler, Leslie Williams, and Ed Tyson that you know I was able to interview to have their input on some of that. And then on my part three, which is basically encompassing, um, I, I have it called the big macro, fuel for your mind, body, and soul. And I discuss all the macronutrients, the reasons that we want to have some carbohydrates, some proteins, some fats. We talk about the role of fluids. So I'll just show you actually you know, like this. So, so this is actually all the foods holding hands. <laughs> yeah. So all the, all the foods hold. So, okay, listeners, you cannot see this, but it's a banana holding an egg, holding fish, holding broccoli, holding bread, holding avocado. So we've got the whole thing. It's like all, ring around the rosy. It's <laughs> great. Well, but hold on before I tell you the last last section. This is just this is I would say um, one of my fat your forgotten friend. Is that somebody walking away with a stick of butter? It, it's a person holding hands with a stick of butter walking. Robin, this <laughs> is fantastic. This is fantastic because this is relatable to people. And this is, these are the things that I say to my clients and they don't believe me when I say, no, 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 you do need to have a carbohydrate at every meal and here is why. No, fats are okay and necessary for our body and here's why. Your book spells it out, which is fantastic. Yeah, and so- it's nice because it's not only relatable, but under written in an understandable way that it's like, okay, I get this. And they can literally, no pun intended, like digest the facts I'm saying, because then with tying it all together, my fourth section is on the road to recovery about compassion. So I have, you know, I talk about the eating disorder voice and who we you know listen to, and then being able to understand who our team is. And, and I have two well-known eating disorder therapists that contributed there, uh, Kathy Sika. Yes, who uh, I know, yes, I know and, well. And Becca Clegg, and who's who's in Georgia. And Carolyn is the foreword of the book, Carolyn Costin. And it's really like a nice bite size. I mean, to, to really see the support and encouragement that, that I'm sure... Karen, when you get your book this week and you're looking at all the testimonials, you'll know every single person in there because many of them have been on this journey with me for a long, long time. So it's, I feel like, you know, what makes my book different is it's written through the lens of a registered dietitian and that I have, you know, references from these other people, illustrations that there are not books like this. I encompass, I have stats from, the transgender community, males, females, and, and a colleague of mine who is transgender and a professor at one of the universities here, he went through the entire manuscript to make sure I had all appropriate gender-affirming pronouns. And I really wanted to be progressive with the times and address that. So my, my statement is, if you know someone living and breathing, it's probably the time to have this book in your life because anyone can understand this book. And Robin, it is so holistic from the nutrition part, the medical part, the psychotherapy part. Like it is, it, it is, I'm excited. I, I told you when you said you were sending me a copy, I said, I'm so honored. I'm, I'm very excited. So it absolutely sounds wonderful. I'm very excited for you. So we are going to have to, as much as I hate to say this, we are going to have to start closing up this podcast. So first of all, what I would like to say is, Robin, thank you so much. It has been a pleasure having you on the show Wanted to ask you a question because what I'd like to do is, as I say in the podcast, is I like to end it on a different note just to get a different side of you other than the eating disorder. So Robin, if you were a character and you were a character in either a book or a movie or a television show, tell the listeners what genre it would be in and why, I think. Um, I would be in a foreign film documentary because I love traveling and I like 
foreign films, they oftentimes show a lot of really great architecture and food, and you really get to the core and the roots of the people. And a documentary, I feel like I live a documentary, and especially when you know we travel, we just canceled our bike trip in September to Israel. And I was like, you know what? My documentary is going to continue here in my home until I can show my passport and be on the road. So that that is what I would say for me. I think it sounds fantastic. I love the way you articulated it. I felt like I was traveling with you a little bit. So again, Robin, thank you. Say the name of your book one more time so all the listeners know. So the book is called The Eating Disorder Trap. Actually, the book website is theeatingdisordertrap.com. And it is available on Amazon. When you see the website, uh, the publisher, Book Logics, PayPal, and now Diesel Bookstore in Brentwood, since my book tour is canceled, they are my bookstore that is kind of my sponsor of, of where now books can be purchased through their website because I'll be doing a virtual book tour through Diesel Bookstore. We're working on that now, actually. Yes, I was looking on your webpage and seeing every every book signing crossed out. Everyone, day after day after day, crossed out, canceled, canceled. So I'm thrilled that I was able to bring you on the podcast. And hopefully this is another way that you can get this out because it is a great book. It is a great message. I love the way you pull everything together. And again, Robin, thank you so much for sharing your story, some of your wisdom, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Listeners, I want to thank you all for being here. It has been a wonderful, wonderful episode. Again, Robin Goldberg, registered dietitian. And I look forward to hearing from everyone and look forward to talking to people next week. Take care. Robin, yeah, you I just want to say goodbye? say goodbye and say my personal website is askaboutfood.com. And I am on Instagram as Robin with a Y, Goldberg, R-D-N. Awesome. All right, everyone. Look Robin up. She's wonderful. Robin, again, thank you. And I will look forward to talking to everybody next week. Take care. Bye-bye. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www dot karen lewis edc.com forward slash podcast you can subscribe to future shows by searching recovery bites on apple podcasts spotify and youtube all right everybody be well and thanks for listening to my bite for the week